This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur, Convergent Science Network podcast together with uh, Tony Prescott. And we're here with Francesca Cocucci. Yes. Um, who was speaking today about her work on the development of the hippocampus, um, and where, where actually you gave a, a great overview of how we can think mm-hmm. these hippocampal uh, circuits to develop in the rat. But what what if if we now look at it, this system from a from a developmental perspective, what are the key features we want to understand? Okay, so what motivated me to start? Uh, looking at the development of the spatial signals in the hippocampus to try and understand uh, a bit about the interrelationships and the relationships between the different components of the spatial system. So we know about place cells that encode location, we know about head direction cells which give a sense of direction, and we know about grid cells which may encode distance traveled, but what we didn't know and we still, I argue, don't know is uh, how the how much they interact, these three components, in order to give a complete percept and representation of allocentric space. Uh, and and also, not only the interactions, uh, but also how they are actually, what kind of signals feed into the single representations to give rise to these complex signals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, to, to anchor that, you also defined if you want a working hypothesis on function, right? Mm-hmm. So you emphasize very much this notion of of episodic uh, mm-hmm. memory as as a, as a key function of the hippocampus. But how should we think about that in terms of the of, of a rat? I mean, because also the paradigms we got we're going to discuss. Do you feel that these really uniquely probe this sort of rat construct of an episodic memory, or are we actually looking at something else? Okay, so my work doesn't speak at all towards episodic memory development or uh, otherwise. And episodic memory, as I mentioned in the lecture, is very difficult to probe uh, outside the human domain. Okay, so there have been notable uh, exceptions. So Richard Morris has looked at this, Nikki Clayton has looked at, at episodic memories, memory in animals, but it's difficult to do so because most of what we understand about episodic memory uh, can be understood from verbal reports. So even when you ask humans about uh, their episodic memories, that's already fraught with difficulties. Mm -hmm. So my work doesn't speak towards uh, the development of episodic memory or um, because I, I, I think it's too difficult in the animal model. Right. And that's why what I talked about was more about the associative prof- properties of memory in uh, hippocampal circuits, and I stayed away from the episodic kind of uh, mm-hmm. right. specific. But then, so you, you gave us as, as a starting point an overview of the developmental trajectory of mm-hmm. rats, right? Where, so in this development of, of, of the rat pup to become an adult rat, what do you see as the main steps that, that we should keep in mind when we now start to look at the development of these circuits? 
Okay, so what is surprising to me? So first of all, as I said, the rats are developing, develop slowly like human infants. So they go through certain steps that kind of are, are paralleled by human infants, both in terms of sensory and, and motor development. But what, uh, what is interesting for me uh, in terms of development are when you see, start seeing sudden transition in development because uh, development can be thought of a kind of successive refinement of, I don't know, sensory information or motor uh, planning and execution, and that's kind of gradual generally. But then you see there are some things that happen during development and they happen quickly, sudden transitions. And one of them is the emergence of exploratory drive in the rat pack. And this was studied by Lynn Adele, amongst others. And it seems quite interesting that this spatial exploration drive emerges within each pup all of a sudden around when they are 19 or 20, 21 days old. And so why is it? What is the critical process that makes this transition happen? And another interesting and parallel transition we have found in our own work is the emergence of the grid cells, which is really kind of abrupt. Right. So what, what is the key ingredient that is missing up until, let's say, the animals are 20 or 21 days old and that kicks in and makes this representation all of a sudden stable to the point and extent that you can see it, you can detect mm -hmm. it, for example, for grid cells. But now, you talked about this analogy with human development, mm. but it's like in, in humans, an order of magnitude slower, right? So what mm. happens in days in, in the rat happens in years in humans. Yes, but also we have a different lifespan, of course. So, But is, from yeah. that perspective, you would say there's still the same maturational processes? Y humans mm. are just slower? Uh, possibly, yes. And also there is, in terms of the, the parallel between brain maturity at birth in the human versus the rodent, it, it's quite different. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But again, drawing direct parallels is always a bit controversial and difficult to do. So right. I don't want to be... But for you, the main anchor yeah. point is really this transition to exploration. That's really for mm. you the main... I think that's quite okay. uh, important. Yeah. I think the, uh, the big, a big difference between humans... And rats is that we are born with our eyes open. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, when they open their eyes, they're, they're still not exploring very much mm -hmm. rats, but uh, they're, they're just beginning to be able to move around outside the nest. So you have this cluster of sensory and motor systems which are uh, allowing exploration, but uh, th th they can begin to explore outside the nest from sort of 10, 11 days a bit later. Yes, it really um, depends on so the it, environmental conditions. So it doesn't sound like it's, uh, I mean, the 19-year-old rat pup is really quite mature in its sensory and motor capability. Yes, so what uh, I'd like to distinguish is between the emergence from the nest, so mm. when they leave the nest for the first time, and if you make the environment very warm, for instance, you can get rats that come out of their huddle, their uh, group of siblings, their nest, very early on. But in general, especially in the wild, it won't happen until they are even 25, 26, 27 days old. And one thing is just emerging from the, the nest, so this just coming out of the nest. And the other thing is organized behavior, exploratory behavior, which is this thing of systematically uh, looking and uh, orienting towards objects and things that are around and systematically sampling the environment. And that's what Nadel was looking at when he said that it tends to happen around when they are 19 to 20 days old. And these are laboratory rats, yeah, mm. of course, mm. that we're talking about. And that's always... We need to qualify this because mm. we don't know what happens in the wild. 
and there is very little work as far as I am aware of on the in the wild. Yeah, um, we had a talk uh, last week from Lea Krubitzer, who's mm -hmm. actually doing some experiments yeah. with semi-wild rats, uh, mm. uh, lab laboratory rats that have been left in a wild place and uh, exhibiting behaviours. So it might be interesting for yes, you to, absolutely. To, to follow what she's doing. Yeah, this is exactly yeah. the kind of work that I'm very interested in. But now tell me, um, so we see a correlation, and we can look now at the emergence of direction cells, play cells, and then grid cells. Um, and and see how if we can correlate that with these behavioral transitions in the mm -hmm. in the developing rat. And what you showed us is that direction cells are there all along this this postnatal day sixteen and until the rat decides to step out of life. Even before, even when they are twelve or thirteen days right. old. So yeah, th yeah. they're really the earliest ones. Yeah. Then you suggested play cells em emerge gradually in mm -hmm. that in that period. Well, the, the grid cells would then emerge very rapidly around postnatal 20, more or less. And that seems to align rather nicely with this exploration uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. So do you really see those as coupled? Yeah, but I can only speculate. Yes, it's tantalizing this, this kind of temporal coincidence between the emergence of stable grid cells uh, and... Uh, the emergence of all the kind of both the exploratory so natural drive towards exploration but also when you test animals on hippocampal dependent tasks that you know they're hippocampal dependent in the adult animals the pups can start solving these tasks only from weaning onwards which is the time when we start seeing these grid cells so it is interesting mm -hmm. that these things happen at the same time but at the moment we haven't done the, the, the experiment where you either delay the emergence of stable grid cells or and you see what happens to the navigation emergence of a navigation behavior so until you do the intervention of the experiment you cannot it's just a correlation it's an interesting mm -hmm. kind of but but now do you see these transitions as also <coughs> sort of reflecting the kind of stage-wise transitions that developmental psychologists have observed in humans mm, that's a difficult question so which kind of uh, well, stage-wise Jean, Jean Piaget would yes. argue, well, well, at certain ages, you yeah, are so not Jean able to perform logical operations. And yeah, yeah, a yeah. Jean Piaget yeah. had specifically for the, uh, the, the special domain, mm -hmm. he thought that uh, children were, uh, uh, I would say, trapped into egocentrism, so egocentric processing until they were very old, 10, 12 days old, uh, years <laughs> old, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> with my rats exactly. so, uh, but okay so for Piaget human children were egocentric and uh, stuck in egocent egocentric processing until they are 10 12 years old okay uh, but now we know that that's not the case mm -hmm. okay that it was the the procedure that he was employing testing these sure. children that was no, but, 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 but the one thing that's but no 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 what's interesting is that both in terms of uh, for human uh, development studies on human development and also cross-cultural development uh, and uh, comparative development seem to suggest that the default processing of spatial relationships, relationships are allocentric. This is the default. It's not egocentric. And this is a huge revolution in the kind of uh, thinking about how space is processed generally. Mm -hmm. uh, because from our perspective of Westerners, it seems natural and intuitive that when we discuss space, we discuss it with reference to our location and our body in egocentric coordinates. But that's possibly because our languages 
trap us into thinking about uh, space in egocentric coordinates mainly. Mm -hmm. If you go and look at other cultures where the lang their language, they talk about, okay, where is the water well? It's north or northwest, as opposed to say it's, uh, it's in front of you and to the left, just take three steps in front of you and then two to the left. Then in those cultures, you see that spaces uh, and spatial relations are processed allocentrically mm. from right. the word go. Mm. So but that's quite interesting. That, uh, absolutely, because mm. it would also suggest that maybe the, to get to egocentric declaration mm. of, of spatial relations might be a larger cognitive operation yes. than the allocentric one. Right? Yes, this is absolutely. really very, very that, interesting. Yes. And indeed, it would then oppose Jean Piaget's idea. Mm. And <clears throat> you could argue, well, Jean Piaget was wrong about many things, but th th that's easy to say afterwards because the big no, no, insight absolutely. was still that they had these qualitative changes, that mm. these rapid mm. transitions. And so, this if the red pup moves into exploration mode on P20, is that for you then the red signature of, of a, a transition, a cognitive transition, and in, on an operational capability of such a red? Mm -hmm comparable to those of the Jean-Pierre saw Yes, in, in so the humans. idea of the, the, the sudden transition is still there, mm -hmm. and that's what I, do, I want to draw the attention on, yes. That right. development is not just about cumulative, monotonic, uh, incremental, and gradual change. Right. There are also these transitions, and what we don't know, we don't have a good handle at the neural level on what these transitions are caused by. So, for instance, the emergence of grid cells around 20 days old, when the animals are 20 days old, I don't think the grid cells are not there. The network is there. It's just that all of a sudden it can be anchored to the outside queue, uh, to the queues, and therefore appears stable to us and we can detect it. But what we've seen, for instance, for head direction cells, these representations are there, but they are drifting. They're unanchored from the uh, frame of reference of the laboratory, and so we cannot see them as directional cells. Uh, I just wanted to defend uh, Jean Piaget because yes. uh, his experiment I don't think was wrong, but he provided a particular tough uh, test of yes. allocentric, which was you know, the, his mountain test. Mountain. You had to imagine what the mountain looked like for, to an observer from the other side. And uh, th that's been, similar tests have been done in younger children or, or I think easier tests in, in some ways. But uh, there's a, a lot of data that, that children find it very hard to put themselves into the shoes of another person. Yeah, you need and to make it psychologically relevant to the child. Well, and, but also there's the, uh, I think there's three different perspectives we have to think about here. There's, there's, my, there's the allocentric view, there's my egocentric view, and then there's my ability to think about your egocentric yes. view. And so, and then when... Uh, we're thinking about uh, child development, then people are, do talk a lot about a significant step towards theory of mind to be able to take somebody else's point Absolutely. of view. Absolutely. And not just theory of mind, but also just the processing of the language when you ask a child to put themselves in the shoes of another person. So how do you ask the question from mm. the... So if you say to the child, okay, what does the word look like to the doll? It's a different, difficult... Li linguistically, it's a difficult statement. Right. So it's very hard to, to perform these this tasks and these experiments. Uh, I wasn't blaming Piaget. I'm just saying it was, yeah. It's one of these things where you run an experiment and you think that the conclusion is sound, and then you realize that there was an artifact uh, 
And and no, so probably it was me saying something that got up Tony's nose. So no, that, no, 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 okay, okay. No, but, but in any case, so the important thing is that again, we we put our rats, which are already grown, uh, born in the laboratory, grown in the laboratory, in these kind of boxes, okay, featureless boxes. And I think we need to stop doing that because the word is not a featureless box. So it's mm. we're doing the mm. same thing as Piaget in a sense. Now we need to introduce uh, things into the boxes, and we need to make this field of studying spatial. Um, navigation circuits more akin to a naturalistic so we need to interrogate the circuits in more naturalistic sure. uh, environments. Now, the, mm. now you observed in your early experiments on these developing uh, spatial cognition circuits that, that we could see as a red analog of cognitive development there were a number of surprises and we should now inspect those to see whether they really were surprises or, or, or actually not. Mm-hmm. So what, one surprise was that the play cells, or something you could call play cell responses in the hippocampus, seem to emerge already at around postnatal 16 before the grid cells emerged postnatal 20. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why was that such a big surprise? Was that a big surprise time, to you yeah, at, at the, the time? time you were really it was shocked? an incredible like, surprise, okay. yes, and that's what uh, made the paper become a science paper at mm-hmm. the time because mm-hmm. people were surprised. Because we were just five years from the discovery of grid cells, which were in, discovered in the internal cortex, everybody thought of the grid cells as being at the input, lying at the input end of the hippocampus, proper where you find place cells, and so and it's very easy by summing grid cells to obtain place cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, so everybody was thinking that that was the way in which the information was flowing. And so seeing that at least during development this equation didn't add up, then was was surprising. Mm-hmm. Now we know that, uh, of course, with the with benefit of hindsight, things are never as easy as they seem. Okay. Right. So. But on the other hand, we could also argue that the play cells you observe in, in this sort of these early days from mm-hmm. P sixteen, P twenty. So so if I'm sort of putting myself in Tony's egocentric perspective, I could say they don't really look like play cells because, you know, they're close to the borders. You don't see any response that looks play cell-like in the center. The response fields are really very broad. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they might be orientation invariant. Yes. Okay, I give and you that. that. That's, that's but that's about something. it. <laughs> yeah, right? But that's already something, right? But because it's then about we it. Need to, yeah, yeah, that's about it. But <clears> then we need to ask ourselves, and these are very important questions, by the way. What is a place cell? Mm-hmm. Okay, what are the fundamental characteristics that a neural signature needs to display in order to be called a place cell, a place response? Yeah, exactly. And that's very important. Mm-hmm. This is a very important question because we see place cells cropping up mm-hmm. everywhere in the brain. You throw an electrode wherever you want, and you can find place cells mm-hmm. nowadays. So. So what is a place cell? And I agree with you that mm-hmm. it's not just looking at blobs on maps, colorful blobs. We need to understand whether these responses uh, are truly allocentric in the sense that they are. So what, what are the main characteristics of what a place cell? First of all, that they need to be invariant to directionality. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the case in the young uh, pups place cells. But also that they need to be... Um, uh, the, res- the result of integrating different cues, so mm-hmm. responding to different cues. So when you do the cue subtraction experiment, you take away one by one the different bits of the laboratory that you might think are used, then the place cell m- must remain, the mm-hmm. place field must remain. So that's another kind of sure. litmus test. But, but uh, what we could argue, if you look at the place cell mm-hmm. response, is that 
initially what you have is just a broad associative response mm. to head direction cells and some sensory features and the most prominent sensory features in these empty boxes in which you put yeah. these pups are just surfaces yes, borders right indeed and that gives you broad associative responses but it we can only call it a play cell if we have really this much higher acuity in space, much higher special uh, uh, localization in space. And for that, for that to reach that stage, you do need the grid cells. But I'm not sure about that because no, I'm just I mean, you I, with no, this no, idea. no, I'm, no, no, I'm not sure about that because I think in terms of spatial information, having larger or smaller place fields doesn't matter. Really, doesn't matter. I mean, as long as b if you have a kind of population code. Them, yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's what we think. Mm -hmm. uh, the system might be working. But then you so turn the argument around mm -hmm. a little bit, because I thought we were defining place cells on the basis of physiological characteristics mm -hmm. and behavioral characteristics, not computational ones, right? Because we're saying, well, there must be a certain specificity in space, mm -hmm. and there must be a certain invariance to, to the orientation in which you enter that location in space, right? So what, the claim I was making is that the play cells are formed on the basis of an associative reaction mm -hmm. to having heading direction and visual features. And this gives you the broad response. But and now what do you think the is sharpening the extra, happens. What do you think is the extra ingredient that... The, the spatial information coming from the grid cells. Okay. So in that story, it's still the grid cells emerge as a necessary requirement to sharpen mm. this broad associative response that's only combining features that are around. But then when in the adult you switch off the grid cells pharmacologically, mm -hmm. you don't see this massive broadening of the place cells that you would expect mm -hmm. according to this theory. So no, I can I agree escape that from that. No? I, can, I can wiggle my way out of okay, that. Okay, okay. So say, tell me, tell me. <laughs> that's memory. Okay. Now, now I formed a memory, so I have, I have a, a strongly ingrained acquired response in mm -hmm. my place cell, but to sharpen it up, that's where I need my grid cells. Well, okay. yes, while I think that, and indeed, and that's why I mentioned the, the work, I think from Pastorkova's lab, about when you switch off the septum uh, with, with Maschimo, so you switch off theta and you get rid of the grid cells. And if you look at uh, place cell formation in novel environments, that tend to happen against the edges of the environment again. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there is definitely something that grid cells confer to the place cell mm -hmm. maps, but I don't think it's spatial information specifically. It's more... It's a sharpening. That's what I'm saying. It's a sharpening yeah, of but the it's, tuning. Yes, but it's selectively when you don't have enough features, so you don't have enough precision about the sensory cues, mm -hmm. because when you are away from this... No, that's exactly edges. the point. Okay, so we're talking that's about exactly the same the point, thing. So, okay, so we are agreeing. But, 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 agreeing. but what I'm playing with is this idea, yeah. like, oh... <laughs> panic grid cells after play cells but what i'm saying is maybe the before the grid cells emerge those cells that will become play cells mm -hmm. have a broad associative response yes. and then they require the sharpening from the grid cells and then they pop out as play cells mm -hmm. this is what i'm so yes 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 right? and the question and is if you were to take away the grid cells so what what interests me about the grid cells mm -hmm. is you take away the grid cells what is it that the animal cannot do anymore mm -hmm. because it doesn't have grid cells so sure. what is the the kind of advantage of mm -hmm. having su having evolved such a system and i think that's the real yeah so Edvard Moser was uh, talking about an experiment in which uh, they put developing rats in a spherical yeah. uh, container where the, you didn't really see the walls and compared it with an enriched environment and a simple square environment. And in the, the sphere, 
the the rats didn't uh, develop grid cells. It took a week uh, or well, so. Y- you to had to then to put them into. Yeah. So I mean, but uh, perhaps the uh, rat pups are in a, a similar situation that you know they are in these huddles. All the stimulation is kind of uh, it's very proximal rather mm. than distal. You know what you care about is being close to your siblings who were warm, you know, yeah, getting that, nutrition yes. from the mother. So you really don't need to know where you are. And it's not until you get out and you start exploring. I do agree, but then the, the puzzle is, why is it that if we think that what grid cells are doing is linear integration, so, okay, so telling yeah. you where how far you've moved, let's say. Let's say that you're thinking that that's one of the functions of grid cells. You may think that rat pups don't need to do that. But then why do they do this wonderful angular integration? Why is it that we get head direction cells? It's just... They must they, be they able to get home. Well, they do lots of orienting. They and must they need get home, you know. Well, they need to be able but to... But they can do this completely on the basis of chemo, chem- yeah. chemotaxis, maybe. They can smell. Maybe, I mean, you say. True, maybe yeah. it's the operational term. But yeah. maybe the difference is that the grid cells have to be learned. Uh, yes, that so that's, that's and, it. So uh, why is it that you need to learn about the grid cells and not about the head direction cells or the place cells? So uh, these are the questions yeah, that I'm interested yeah, yeah. in. But, but what is really but, cool but what, here... But the point I would be making is that perhaps if... Yeah, if if the experience of the rat pod is different, then the, you could shift the developmental timetable and maybe bring it forward, mm-hmm. or as an adverse case, you delay it. Yes. Um, but it would be interesting to do it the other way. I don't know if anyone's tried to bring it forward. Yes, yeah. I don't think we have. Yeah. But also, Tony, from a so. from a comparative perspective, yeah. we could argue: look, if we go to species that were on this planet before rats emerged, or mammals in general. Mm-hmm or uh, that will still be there also when mammals disappear, uh, thanks to us, um, they use, they do build heading vectors like ants, like desert ants, right? They build these heading vectors to find the home position. Mm -hmm. And they just essentially have like an attractor-like integrator that helps them just to have this big vector that always helps them to get home. Mm-hmm. Why not generalize that now to your red pup? Where you say, well, they use heading, they use heading direction to have always this big home vector that says, not in the simple box in the lab, but if I'm in a, in in the wild, in complex environments with obstacles, whatever, I always know where home is, mm-hmm. right? Without chemical cues. So yes. that's why that will be more fundamental. Mm-hmm. Right, and then I built the rest of the system on that through initially through association. But then we come back to your question, which we actually should look at after we look at a bit more data. But time is running short, um, and you have to follow your homing vector. Yes. Okay. Um, why would we then have the grid cells? And the thing there is the grid cells give you a highly accurate metric uh, representation. It tells you the direction you're moving into. It tells you something about the spatial relations in your environment. The grid cells have more spatial information overall than play cells. But you have to... This works because it's an attractor network that, that follows a certain topology. Mm-hmm. The connections in that system have to follow a certain topology yes, for this to they, work. And they need to be set it, up. It must be a twisted torus mm-hmm. uh, topology. Otherwise, it's not going to yes. work from a, from a connectivity mm-hmm. perspective. So the argument could be, look, I first need to have a heading direction system and some sort of rough space estimation using my associative pre-play yes. cells to build to have a scaffold mm-hmm. in which I can now fine-tune my grid cells. Once I did that, now I have my metric system. Now I can fine-tune, so I can bootstrap now my play cells Yes. because now I have my metric system, right? So, Absolutely. so what's I wrong with that agree. story? No, no, there is no, there, nothing is wrong with the story. The only well, problem is that we are done, but <laughs> we need to prove it. 
Mm-hmm. We need to prove okay, it. Okay, how are you going to prove that? <laughs> Tell me. I don't know if I'm going to prove it. Why not? <laughs> but what we need to do as collectively as a field, we need to really try and understand what this wonderful grid says that we all love, are mm-hmm. what kind of advantage they are conferring. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we need to okay. design tasks, and these are behavioral tasks, mm-hmm. that tap really into this properties mm-hmm. that we think grid cells. Yeah, but, but look, the tasks that you use, like these empty boxes. No, no, I mean a behavioral task. I'm of not course. Domain, yes. No, so but, but right now, right now we make all our inferences or most of our inferences on this system using tasks that, that sort of natural rats are never exposed we to. Actu- yeah, right? absolutely. We actually Isn't that a big distorting factor? Absolutely. Yes, it is. And that's why I was saying that we need mm-hmm. to start build, making these recordings in more naturalistic environments. So okay. I know that Edward has talked about object mm-hmm. vector cells. So you start seeing new things when yeah. you insert objects mm-hmm. all of a sudden in these featureless environments. These cells cells akin to this were discovered also by Nearim, Jim Nearim, quite a while ago. So mm-hmm. it is important for our field to move away from featureless boxes, which were introduced for a very good reason by mm-hmm. Bob Muller many years ago, because at the beginning when John O'Keefe started his studies, he worked with very complex mazes, and that brought lots of complexity, and it was very difficult to understand what the basic phenomenon of place self or place field was. Mm-hmm. Now we can go back to it, now that the basics have been... Uh, so what's really? the next environment you want to see in the lab? What's the ne- uh, For me, yeah. I want to see a barrel system okay. for the development. That's what I want mm-hmm. to see. Might and so now, now we, well, well, yes, but we have wireless technology. And so, so that's mm-hmm. that's the thing. So As usual in science, okay. yes, that's mm-hmm. what we're doing. As usual in science, there is the technological advancement that allows you to ask the questions that mm-hmm. you really wanted to ask, and then you move on and you move on. Of course. Like no, that, that's really fantastic. But now, to what extent have you been able to also generalize your insights in the system in the rat to humans? So Do you think it plays out the same way, or is there a transition? Are humans different? No, humans are not different. No. We're just more vicious. But uh-huh. <laughs> no, no. But I think that the, now, aside, joke, joke aside, I think the fundamental principles will be very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if we have any specific evolutionary niche that mm-hmm. makes us peculiar or special in, right. the, in spatial processing. I, okay. I don't think mm-hmm. so. All yeah. right. But now one of the principles you pointed to... Um, was attractor networks, right? This notion of attractor. But do you think the notion of an attractor has been helpful in the study of this system? I think it has been incredibly helpful. Okay, why? Yes. Because it has made us uh, ask questions about how the information, how information is uh, processed, encoded, and also stored, but also retrieved. Mm-hmm. By, by the hippocampus in general. So I think that's very important. And in specifically for the grid cell, kind of after the grid cell discovery, it was very interesting to see that these two camps of the oscillatory model versus the attractor uh, model of how these grid cells could emerge. And now we see a convergence between these two mm-hmm. uh, models. So I think historically as well has been an interesting I journey. I thought the interference models are just invalid. How do we see convergence? Well, you to- I, I'm sure you've done a podcast with Professor Neil Burgess, who <laughs> <laughs> will have answered that question. <laughs> no, but, but there's one thing we should worry about with these attractor models. Like, attractor models can al- almost never be wrong, right? Because dependent, even the interference models, I could reinterpret with mm-hmm. their intrinsic as an attractor model, because as long as you define. And indeed, that's what's happening, right? 
No, no sure, of, but if yeah. you are, you can arbitrarily define states in the state space of mm -hmm. your system, and you can define the state space in such a dimensionality that you have stable states, even if they're oscillatory, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's yeah. okay, these are my attractors. Yeah, yeah, they're right? basins. So certainly, that if you talk about memory, mm -hmm. and since memory means there's a stability intrinsically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's sort of circular to then say, oh, an attractor network is fantastic to describe this, but all because all you're actually saying is there's stable points in a dynamical system. Mm -hmm. So is it so shouldn't we then think beyond attractor models? Okay, so what what would you think? What would you suggest is a promising avenue to look at? One one promising avenue might be maybe to bring in more of the specific physiological. Uh, features that we know that this mm -hmm. system shows. So attractor models also allow us to stick at a relatively abstract level, but where we do not necessarily take into account the huge heterogeneity, the modular organization, the specific So let me tell you topology. about the specific problem I have with attractor networks, um, for instance, for grid cells, overhead direction cells. Mm -hmm. In order to set them up, first of all, we don't know how, what kind of wiring at the, really, at the detailed level could support attractor uh, network topology. And, and the real problem is that in order to set up such wiring, you need to invoke quite complex developmental processes. And so I, coming from development, I want to know how you wire it up in the first place. And so that's the other thing that people like myself and other people need to really work on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, Francesca, um, so you're in this business for a while. You, you're, you're in a very rich also... Uh, as you know, rats in rich environments do great. Humans in rich environments do great as well. You're in a really rich scientific environment there at UCL, working with great collaborators. Um, so, but now, given your experience in the field, what is Francesca's law to study the brain? What is Francesca's law to study the brain? Yeah, you got it. Okay. <laughs> Francesca's law to study anything, never mind the brain is to persist in the face of tragic failure and complete <laughs> and utter continuous failure and persist and just be be joyful about it mm -hmm. and enthusiastic. That sounds yeah. more like an almost like an autobiographical note. Is that true? No, 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 no. no. I think this is this is what motivates humans. Okay. And so this is the positive side about being Great. human actually. Very good. Yeah. And then um, okay, look, we're facing all sorts of problems now with, with international travel. Certainly <laughs> soon I cannot go to UK anymore. Yes. Uh, not only because... Um, and Donald Trump is going to make all our boundary cells fire. Exactly. But we yeah. have an agent in the UK who we can send to your lab in five years from now. Mm -hmm. And that agent sits just next to me, to you here at the other side of the okay. table. Uh, that's a matter of a train ticket. And Tony's going to come visit your lab five years from now to check whether a prediction you made today was falsified or verified. So what's the one prediction you would like to see tested in a five-year framework? Okay, let me think. What's the five? Uh, where would I? Mm. One prediction, five years to do it. Five years? That's, That's when little. it's going to come. I, I These tickets are expensive. You know, <laughs> need to save up. Um... That I only have very long-term stuff what that I'm interested in. What do you want? Ten in. years? No, I want like several lifetimes. <laughs> I I'm want not to sure know. Tony wants to wait that long. I, I really know. want to know whether the hippocampus is really just truly about space or mm -hmm. not, and How what about time and the other things. So, you would, in five years' time, you would like to see the hypothesis tested that the hippocampus is about temporal processing. 
Yes, they're already starting to test it. Mm -hmm. But yes, yes, I'm interested in all these other things that Hippocampus mm -hmm. might be doing. Yeah, coming out of the space box. All right, Francesca Cucucci, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.